here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, look at this next passage in Exodus together. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would come uh, and quiet our anxious hearts. I pray that you would come and prepare us to encounter your word, which you say is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow. I pray that you would cut us to the heart like a scalpel, but that it wouldn't just injure us, but that same scalpel would heal us. And I pray that as we look at this passage that was written so long ago, that you would, by your Spirit, apply it to our hearts today. We pray that you would uh, meet us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last, last night, or yesterday afternoon, I read this article uh, in a magazine, online magazine, I'm feel sure they have it in print also, but a magazine called The Atlantic, which is kind of a highbrow East Coast publication. Has anybody read The Atlantic or anything off of there? Yeah, occasionally. Um, <coughs> fellow highbrowers, what's up? Um, and the, the, the title of this relation, or the title of the article was Relationships Are More Important Than Ambition. Uh, which is a fairly spicy title. Uh, and in, in the article, the author talks about this idea, um, and, not the idea, the pitfalls that come when people have the mentality of, I'm going to pursue success and ambition at, at all costs. That that is the thing that I'm going to move toward in my life. Um, and the author kind of explores some of the, the, the side effects of that or some of the pitfalls that come with that sort of mentality. And she is kind of mirroring a book that she had recently read, and she kind of explains that author's thesis. But she says this statement. I think it's pretty fascinating. She says, These ideas are interesting given that relationships and community pose some challenges to our assumptions about the good life. And when she says that, the whole premise of the article is that the good life, kind of the American picture of the good life, is that it's the best life is when I can do whatever I want to do. I get to set my own schedule. I don't have any constraints. I am just a free person doing exactly what I want every moment of the day. And so she says that it, uh, this idea challenges some of our assumptions about that good life. After all, relationships and community impose constraints on freedom. Binding people to something larger than themselves. All right? That makes sense. If you have friends or if you have a group that you're a part of, you have responsibility in that to care for those people or to check up on them or to fulfill your, your role in the group. The assumption in our culture is that limiting freedom is detrimental to well-being. And that is true to a point. Barry Schwartz, a psycho psychological researcher based at Swarthmore College, has done extensive research suggesting that too much freedom or a lack of constraints is actually detrimental to human happiness. That's not something that you kind of readily hear in our culture today. That when you get what you think you most want, which is absolute and utter freedom to do whatever you want, with no constraints, with no one standing over you saying, don't do that or that, that's not best for you, we never really consider that that kind of total autonomy is, as this article suggests, detrimental to human happiness. But that is exactly the picture that I've been trying to paint for this whole semester as we've looked at the book of Exodus. 
Because as we've seen in this book, what happens, it kind of opens up with this people group, this family really, that is enslaved, literal slavery in, uh, in, in Egypt, within the nation of Egypt. And the story goes that, that God comes and visits them. And He says that He knows about their slavery. This was His special family that had Abraham as its father. And God says, look, I haven't been absent. I know what you're going through. And you are like my sons and daughters, and I love you, and I'm going to rescue you. And He does that by raising up a rescuer, a deliverer, whose name was Moses. And we saw that Moses wasn't a good person. He wasn't, I mean, he wasn't a good person at all. He killed somebody. He was just kind of a murderer, right? Kind of an outcast of religious circles for sure. But God comes and picks Moses and says, I want you to be the one that brings my people out of Egypt. And Moses hesitatingly agrees. And then we saw that as God uh, continues to work through Moses, um, that he miraculously delivers these people out of slavery through bringing these terrible plagues on Egypt. And we looked and, and saw how really those plagues were just a picture of what Egypt was already doing for themselves. They wanted to live independently of God. And he basically, through those plagues, was saying, this is what your desired independence from me gets you. Total and utter destruction and chaos. And he brings them through and parts the Red Sea and they go through on dry ground and the Egyptian army is consumed by these waters in the Red Sea. As if to say again, these are my kids and I am their jealous father. You don't get to mess with them. Through and through, God is demonstrating to these people that with Him at the center of their lives, at the center of their of who they were as a nation, that they had nothing to fear. There was nothing that they should be afraid of. They were created to worship Him and follow Him, and He would protect them, and He would be their God, and they would be His people. But this delivery from, slave, from slavery in Egypt to freedom was never, ever, ever conceived to be a delivery into absolute and utter autonomous freedom. Because God knew that if they had that kind of freedom, that it would create a whole new kind of slavery for them. That they would go out wanting and doing things that weren't good for them. And so last week, we saw that God actually imposes a law on them after He has freed them. It is a law to say, here is how you will best function. If you live within the constraints of it, it's not meant to save you. You've already been saved. But this is how you are best meant to live and function. And the article we read is merely hinting at the foundational truth of Scripture. That too much freedom or trying to rebel against the natural law that God has put in place through His Word, that rebellion against that and seeking to be free from that will utterly be detrimental to our happiness, our joy, our shalom. With the Bible, this all-encompassing idea of what is best for you. Peace, prosperity, wholeness. To go against God will bring that down. And so he tells them, in this passage we're about to read, that not only is he going to give them a law to abide by and to follow, but that he's actually going to come and be with them in a way that He hasn't done it to this point. But up until now, He's been visiting them at certain times, and up on mountains He would meet with Moses, and He would guide them by a, a pillar of, of fire and a cloud of smoke. But what God's about to say is, 
I'm going to come be with you in a way that you've never known me before. The passage is short tonight, which makes me really excited. Uh, Let's read from Exodus 25, uh, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hairs and tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle in all of its furniture, so you shall make it. That is God's Word. These verses amount to what is just like an introductory paragraph to, and I actually cut and pasted this into, into pages to see how long it would be. This amounts to an introductory paragraph to a 17-page term paper on what exactly this sanctuary would be like. And God gives Moses very specific details. If you really want to get bored and go to sleep tonight, uh, that feels weird. Sorry, God. Uh, But, you know, open up Exodus 25 and following for about seven chapters and read about the dimensions of the tabernacle and read about how they were supposed to carve the furniture in a certain way. And we're reading this and we're like, good grief, what is going on? But what he is saying is if you want me to come be in your midst, you do this exactly, exactly as I am commanding you. You do all of these things exactly it. And we see that in that last verse up there. I have, uh, I have an aunt and uncle who live in Amarillo, Texas, and they shall remain nameless in case they're listening. I don't think they would be. But um, they, about three or four years ago, they set out to build kind of their dream house in Amarillo, Texas, which is an oxymoron, I realize. Uh, But they wanted to build this customized house that was so different from anyone else in Amarillo that everyone would look at it and just in amazement say, wow, that's like nothing we've ever seen, right? And so in a day and age when a builder can throw up a house and finish it out in a couple of months, it took them between two and three years to finish this house because they'd have to wait on the tile from Italy and they'd have to wait on the sculpture from Portugal. I mean, crazy stuff, right? Um, And I don't, actually, I know exactly why they did it. Because they wanted, when people drove by or when people came in at the parties, the lavish parties that they would host, they wanted their house to say something about them. They wanted it, they wanted people to look at them and say, wow, you're really sophisticated. Or you're really wealthy. Everyone already knew that. But you're really wealthy. They wanted to speak of them. And that is exactly Exactly what God does when He gives these exact specifications about this this tabernacle that was to be built, this sanctuary. He told Moses these incredibly scrupulous details because He wanted people to walk into that place and to say, there's something different about this. There's something different going on here. And the point was this, that God was trying to get across. That I am different. And I can't be near you on your own terms. 
If you want me to be near you, you have to approach me on my terms. You have to do exactly as I have said. And if you do that, with me you will have peace, and you will have joy, and you will have happiness, and you will have fulfillment and flourishing. But without me, you will flounder away. You will forever be moving away from me toward your own ruin and destruction. And you will forever be looking for something else to give you deep meaning and joy and fulfillment that every single one of us right here, right now longs for. So he's telling that in the picture of this temple. He says, if you want me with you, you do it exactly this way. It has to be a place fit for the king of the universe. So it takes 17 pages to tell him that. All right, so God comes close to them. It's the first point tonight. He comes close. Okay, because through the book of Exodus, we have the people of Exodus just failing one after another, whether it's Moses' failure, whether it's the people of Exodus after they came through the Red Sea, they grumbled against him and were like, oh, God, you're not going to provide for us. He's like, gosh, don't you guys get it? I love you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to provide for you. And so it's just been this story of repeated failure after repeated failure. But here, in a moment of shining brilliance, the people of Israel do exactly what he tells them to do. So for about five or six chapters, from chapter 25 through 31, it says God's telling Moses, this is what I want the temple to look like. And from chapter 33 through chapter 40, it's basically an exact repeat. You take those verses that said, I want you to do this, and the next, from 33 to 40, say, and they did this. Exactly the same. And here is how chapter 40 ends. The very end of the book of Exodus says this, And he, Moses and the people, but he, Moses, built the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court, and so Moses finished the work. Sorry, let me put it up there. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the picture is this, that when they did exactly what God told them to do, to the exact specifications, God fulfilled His promise and He came and was with them. He entered into their, literally the tabernacle was right in the middle of their encampment. He came and was right in their midst, saying, I am your God and you are my people. And it was a great moment of celebration because He was with them. He was close to them. And He was the one who pursued His people despite all of their rebellion against Him. If He was waiting for the, for the people of Israel to be perfect the whole time, He would have never come. But He did say, if you will do this one thing, I will come. And they did it and He came. You see, it was a real relationship. When there were standards, but when they broke standards, there was grace and forgiveness. Sometimes there were consequences, but it was a real relationship. There was give and take, but there was always a standard of this is what this relationship will be like. 
See if we can understand it this way. The Bible, the whole Bible, is trying to get us to see that to be a Christian, to be in relationship with God, is, is like a real relationship that we have with each other. Now think about like a dating relationship, okay? Let's say that uh, you meet someone uh, who doesn't live here in Tulsa, who doesn't go to TU. Uh, let's say you meet someone at a conference, maybe even in Florida in two weeks if you're going there perhaps, and you find a sweet little something on the beach, and you get to know him or her, and you strike up just this flourishing little romance. And inevitably, Friday comes and you're saying your goodbyes. And you decide, wow, I kind of want this to work. I want to see if this will last. And so you begin that terrible and yet necessary texting relationship. Or this awful FaceTiming deal where you see the person yet you're not with them. And look, you know that if the relationship is ever going to progress into something real that you're always going to be trying to figure out how to get back into each other's presence, how to physically be with each other. Texting won't suffice. Too much is lost in translation there. Space time is better, but it's not great. Skyping for you non-Mackers. Um, look. <laughs> Sorry, Mac righteousness, I know. Um, And you're always going to be looking to try to figure out when is the next plane flight going on sale so I can go see that person. Or for some of you, you may even be thinking, gosh, should I transfer? Hopefully you're not thinking that for a while. Uh, but should I transfer to be closer to them? The idea holds that re relationships are most fully experienced when you're in person. And so God came and He was near to them, but He didn't stop there. God comes even closer than that. Fast forward into the New Testament. When you see Jesus Himself coming in person to be with His people. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he was one of Jesus' closest friends. Sometimes he would write himself into the story and he would say, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was him. It's really funny. He just doesn't want to say that's him. Like, ah, Jesus loved me the most, but I don't really want to say that. It's kind of arrogant. But anyway, John says this in chapter 1 of, of his gospel account. He says, uh, he's calling Jesus the Word. It was one of the names that he, that he had for Jesus, like a nickname, I guess. Actually, it's way more complicated than that. That's okay. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was... Uh, was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the light was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he drops down to verse 14 and says this. And this is remarkable. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying is that God kept His promise to be with His people. And since it was a real relationship, He came as close as He could be with them. He came to be with them in person. To walk among them. When it says that He dwelt among them, the, verb, the, the verb, word there in, Hebrew, in Greek is literally He tabernacled with them. He's trying to get us to see that the Old Testament tabernacle was really just pointing forward to Jesus. 
that Jesus is the new tabernacle and He's in our midst. That's how much God loves you. He's come to be with you. He's come to be one of you. Jesus came as God in their midst. He came closer than He had been. Well, what was He like? If you think about the God, God that we read about in the Old Testament, coming as a person, what do you think He'd be like? It's really, really fashionable in our day to look at the Old Testament God and, and want to make Him out to be this arbitrary warmonger who's just this terrible figure who arbitrarily you know, slaughters people and just is a, a God of blood, you know, and just it's messy and, and He's just killing people for fun, it seems like. But what happens is that that is God's picture, and that's the Old Testament's bloody, and I'm not getting away from that. And Jesus points that the end of time at the judgment, it's going to be pretty bloody also. Because God takes sin and rebellion against Him really seriously. He says, look, if you want to live for yourself, it's going to mean your own destruction. It's going to utterly be your ruin. It's going to be the death of you. But there's so many clear pictures in the Old Testament of a God who's gracious and who's merciful and who's patient with His people and who doesn't just wipe people out, but He's gentle, even when they screw up. And so what would He be like if that God were to come as a human? We only have to look at Jesus. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. You, we have to get that. That He is the same God that you read about in the Old Testament. He's not different. It's later on, and there are certain things that happen between the Old and New Testament, but Jesus is that God. So what was Jesus like? Well, when He came, people were drawn to Him. Outcasts. People who weren't popular, people who had really messed up at life, prostitutes, drunks, tax collectors, sinners. And occasionally, a self-righteous person would even come to Jesus when He opened their eyes to see it. So you had the bad stuff, the, you know, the societally bad stuff, but then you had the really bad stuff, the self-righteous. And occasionally, even they came to Him. And what, what happened when they came to Him? He would heal them. He had power and He had authority to cleanse them mentally from all that ailed them, from their anxiety, from their depression, from their demon possession and oppression. Jesus could do that. Physically, He would heal them of their disease and sickness. And spiritually, He would forgive them. He would look at them and say, your, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go and sin no more. You are cleansed. He was telling them not to, don't disbelieve, but believe in me. He acknowledged their sin. He acknowledged their brokenness. God didn't, He didn't pass over. He didn't ignore it. He acknowledged it and He forgave it. And we have to know that. That when God looks at us in all of our frailty and all the stuff that we do in rebellion against Him, He doesn't look over it. He doesn't just say, well, that's not that big of a deal. But instead of punishing us for it, instead of justly giving us the punishment for our sin, He justly gave it to Jesus instead of us. 
And so Jesus, after he did everything right, after he healed all these people, cleansed all these people, made them uncrazy, he then said, well, and now I'm going to take everything you deserve so that you might be full and holy forever, so that you might have lasting joy. And so look, when Jesus comes, not only is he showing people then and us now that you weren't created to live apart from God, but if we really understand what Jesus is doing, our question has to become this. Why would I want to live apart from God? If Jesus is offering me wholeness and fulfillment and joy and acceptance and happiness, why would I want to be apart from Him? And that's a really serious question that you need to ask. If the Bible is true, then it's saying without Christ, without being restored to God through Him, you will be forever searching for something to give you joy. For something to, to, feel, to fill that void that you have, that you know you have. You're always going to be looking for it. But if you have Christ, then that is filled. Then He will begin to fill you completely and utterly in the ways that you long to be fulfilled. It doesn't mean everything is going to be great like that instantly. But He will begin that process of healing you. So I think it's actually the most important question you'll ever ask. Ever, ever, ever. I, I don't make absolute, over-the-top, superlative statements that often, but I actually do I think this is it. What will you do with Jesus? Is He just an example? Was He just a, a good person? Or was He God in the flesh who came into our midst to experience life, to go th be tempted as you are, as I am, but not to give in? And at the end of His life, He offers us His perfect resume of perfection of holiness. He offers it to us and He takes our crappy resume of sin. He does it because He loves us. Jesus rescued us from our bondage to sin, from our bondage to everything that enslaves us. He heals us. He makes you most fully who you were created to be. In Exodus, the tabernacle was built to be a place of utter cleanliness. Nothing impure was to come into it. Utterly clean. At the end of chapter 40, as we read, once the priest finishes cleansing everything, God comes and dwells in it. And when your faith is in Jesus, God actually comes closer to you than you would ever imagine. Thirdly, tonight, we, we see that actually God, He comes into us. He actually dwells inside of us. Perhaps you're like me, and maybe in your childhood at some point, you heard someone say, you shouldn't smoke, or you shouldn't drink, or you shouldn't cuss, because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, they can shake your finger at you. It's like, well, okay, whatever that means, I guess I shouldn't smoke, right? Um, I guess for me it was smoking, you know, pick your poison, whatever it was. Uh, so, you know, fine. But I actually think there's quite a bit more 
than meets the eye with that verse. It's biblical. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Great. Well, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he appeared to his disciples, and they were utterly shocked. I mean, they didn't expect him to be resurrected from the dead, but he appears to them in a body, in person. They didn't believe him, and so uh, Jesus says, well, touch me and touch my sides, and, you know, doubting Thomas touches him and says, my Lord and my God, you really are here. This really is you. And so they're freaking out. They're waiting in this room. Jesus appears to them, and they're freaking out. They're like, this is awesome. You're alive. What do we do? We want to go tell people, but that's, people are going to think we're crazy. What do we do? And Jesus looks at them and says, wait here in this room until power comes to you from on high. It tells us this at the end of Luke. And then we begin the book of Acts, which is actually just the second half to the book of Luke. If you didn't know that, that's for free. Uh, but Acts starts out, and it's just a continuation. And it, so it opens with the disciples, the followers of Jesus, standing in this room, and they're waiting. They're like, well, he told us to wait here, so we're waiting. And then there's this verse in Acts chapter 2 that says this. It says, something came upon them like a rushing wind. And above every single person in the room was a little flame of fire. And it stood above them. And when it did, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they were, they looked at all of the people around them and they began to tell them about the gospel. They began to tell them about Jesus in their own native language, in their own tongue. The Spirit filled them and they were doing supernatural things. And so Peter, everyone looks around and is like, what are we supposed to do? We've heard this message about Jesus. What do we do? And Peter looks and at the end of the sermon in Acts chapter 2. He looks at everyone and says, Repent. Turn away from what you're doing and believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul makes it even more clear in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. He said, When you receive the Holy Spirit, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That God, if you are a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus, God actually isn't somewhere out there. He's in here. He's inside of you by His Spirit. I get that that's kind of weird. I know. But it's a promise. Look, and when I was in seminary, one of my friends, actually one of my best friends, uh, he had a really old computer, and the battery on his computer couldn't hold a charge anymore. Some of yours are like that, too. Where you can get a real job so you can replace it. Um, but his computer couldn't hold a charge, and so what he would do is he would sit at the end of the table uh, by the wall so that, he's, so that he could stay plugged in. And it was really funny because he would yell at people as they walked by. He would say, don't trip on the cord! Don't unplug it! Because he knew that the second it was unplugged, it would die. Just totally die. And he would lose everything. It was before uh, Steve Jobs started getting creative and doing the auto-update thing, you know, or the auto-save. Anyway, man, two Mac references one night. Uh, and, and so anyway, he would do that and he would sit over there and yell at them because he knew, he knew that if he lost his power source, he had nothing. To the people in the room tonight who aren't... Uh, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, or maybe you're kind of on the outside, skeptical of it, trying to check it out, figure out what's going on. That's my phone. That's awesome. Uh, what's that? Three. 
No, I said phone. I didn't say iPhone. <laughs> I'm not that way. Um, so uh, if you're checking out Christianity and you're honestly looking at what it entails to be a Christian, you know, you may be looking at what it means to have Jesus, you know, at the center of your world or, or the implications for you morally, you know, what, what all you're going to have to change if you decide to follow Jesus. Or even, you know, am I going to have to start reading the Bible? Gosh, that seems really boring. Um, you know, you're kind of asking these questions. What would it look like for me to be a Christian? Can I suggest that as you think about these things and they start to seem really hard or like or really boring, that you're trying to think of those things without being plugged into the power source. That of course, considering giving up your lifestyle of whatever, the ways that you're still loving your sin, you realize it's not good for you, but you really want to do it. Of course, if you look at that and say, man, to get that up, it's going to be really hard. Yes, exactly. Of course the Bible looks boring and archaic because you don't have the Spirit inside of you who is connecting the dots for you. You don't have the Spirit inside of you that's powerful and is helping you to die to your sin, to begin to hate the things that you used to love and to love the things you used to hate. Of course it seems impossible. But you're asking it without being connected to the source. And for those of you in here tonight who would consider yourself a Christian, a diagnostic question first. Is there any sense of God's work in you? Can you take your life for the last however long, I don't know, and begin to see, man, God actually has been changing me. That I do love things that I didn't used to love. Or I'm beginning to see how the things I used to love are actually hurtful to me that I shouldn't do them or I don't want to do them as much. Or I actually am beginning to like people that used to really annoy me. Or I'm not quite as self-righteous as I used to be. I don't have to continue to tell people how good I am or show them that. Is there any mark of any of that in your life? If there's not, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. But I am saying you ought to be real honest with God and have a heart-to-heart conversation with Him and say, God, what is in here that's keeping that from happening? Is there some sin in my life that I just don't want to give up and it's blinding me to my need for you and how much you want me to change? You need to ask God that. The second question, though, is this. Think about the passage in Exodus. And how those verses at the very end, God waited until everything was just right. He waited until the priests had finished everything, until Moses had built it, until the priests had cleansed everything, until he came and dwelt in their presence. And what Peter said in that sermon right up above, where it's up on the screen right now, what he said, and what I'm saying tonight, is that if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, if you are trusting in Him, however weak your faith is, if you have questions, that's okay. If you're just not sure how it all adds up, that's okay. But if you have just a a mustard seed of faith in who Jesus is and what He came to do for you, then what Peter says, and what I'm trying to get you to see, is that God has sent... His Spirit to dwell in you. And that means this. 
that in his sight you are absolutely, 100%, totally clean. That when God looks at you, you are spotless. That there isn't one blemish left there. That you are the temple. And when God comes into the temple, He doesn't come when it's dirty. He only comes when it's clean and when it's ready. And friends, if your faith is in Jesus, He has made you ready. He's cleansed you. And so with that thought of when you screw up, even as a Christian, when you fail and don't do the things that you know you should do, or when you do the things you know you shouldn't do, and everything about you, your conscience is trying to slay you and say, you are terrible, and you are filthy, and you are ugly, and you are unworthy, and you are all these things. Or when your friends come to you and say, you are a slut, or you are a drunk, you're an alcoholic, you're whatever, God is in heaven saying, no, that is not what's true of you. You are clean. And I am not ashamed to be inside of you. That's what Jesus came to do. To cleanse you and to present you to God as perfect, as clean. And so when God looks at you, He sees you that way. Friends, Jesus did everything necessary for you. He paid it all. So the only question is why wouldn't you want to follow Him? Why wouldn't you love Him? What more could He do for you? Let's pray.